For many of us, a trip to the cinema has been replaced by a night on the sofa in front of a 4K widescreen smart TV. We live in the age of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus and a plethora of other streaming companies. Increasingly, film studios following the old maxim, if you can't beat them, join them, release movies directly to audiences, often bypassing cinemas altogether. But in the not-so-distant past, a visit to the cinema was at the centre of social life for many people, especially in urban areas. In Dublin, particularly from the 1930s onwards, new cinemas were built to cater for the huge crowds who craved the latest that Hollywood had to offer. I'm joined by Dr Ruth McManus of Dublin City University, who has researched the history of a number of Dublin cinemas, particularly on the city's north side. Ruth, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you very much. Um, Tell us a little bit about the the very, very early days of cinema going in Ireland. I mean, cinema, I suppose, started in the 1890s. At what point did it start to arrive in Ireland? Well, very quickly, within a few months of the earliest moving pictures, we have that fad coming to Ireland in about 1896. But they were usually travelling as, you know, seen in fairs and that kind of thing. So it wasn't for about a decade or so that we have settled picture houses, um, usually converted buildings Probably the best known is the Volta. Everybody mm. thinks it's the first cinema. Oh, was but, it not the first? Um, James Joyce, well, it wasn't the first one. No, no Dennis Condon uh, will tell you that there are other candidates for for the very first. Um, the Queen and, and Brunswick Street, uh, Pier Street today was probably a bit earlier. Um, this, we just like to think of we James like Joyce. We like to think of James Joyce, the, the Volta. Yeah. And of course, the Volta showed mostly Italian uh, films, which had, and of course, these are silent movies. So um, you have the, the intertitles, which ha- explain the plot. And these are all written in Italian. <laughs> so for Dublin audiences, it was a bit of a stretch. So they don't bother changing um, them to English? No, no. So they used to print up a little synopsis. <laughs> just in case <laughs> you got lost the plot. Always going on. So then in the, in the late 20s, obviously, cinema changes forever with the emergence of the talkies, with the with first off the jazz singer. And uh, did that spark a golden age for cinemas in Ireland? I mean, there must have been a huge shift in technology for a start from silent to talkies as far as the cinemas were concerned. Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, the Savoy opened in 1929 and that was one of these beautiful, it was the mm. a- an atmospheric cinema, so beautifully luxurious, five different different prices depending on where you were sitting in this vast auditorium. So it was one huge auditorium with a proscenium arch that looked like um, something in Venice Mm. um, and about, I think it held almost 3,000 people. But that actually had to be retrofitted for sound. It came a little bit too early and there had been a little hiatus. So the Drumcondra Grand uh, was the first theatre that was actually built for sound in 1934. And I suppose it was timing was right because you had the emergence of this new medium, the talking picture, at the same time that you had these new suburbs and lots and lots of people only delighted to have some form of entertainment to take them out of themselves. Is it my imagination or were a lot of these huge cinemas, the the, the, the grand, were, you know, they were Cabra, Grand, Drum, Cabra, north side of Dublin rather than necessarily south side? Or uh, is it just that some of the south side cinemas have actually survived? I think it's partly that um, where the population growth was happening. So, for example, Merino had just been completed in a vast new mm. housing estate and then you have the Fairview Grand opening 
um, which is catering for that market. Uh, but you did have some very big cinemas on the south side as well. Some of them a little bit later, for example, Ballyfermot had the gala, but that doesn't open till the 50s because that's when Ballyfermot is developing. And that had, I think, one of the biggest screens in the entire country. Or at least they boasted that it was. And to what extent was going to the cinema a very different experience than to today? Obviously, you were sitting with potentially anyway, a far, far bigger audience. For sure. And again, there was sort of a difference between the functional cinemas in the suburbs and then these more palatial city centre first run theatres that would have not only did they have the cinema screen, but they had a restaurant, they might have had a ballroom like the Metropole. So there was a full experience on offer, sort of a magical experience for people. When you went to the cinema, it was not just... An occasional experience. I think I was reading data for recently. An average Irish person goes 3.3 times a year to the cinema. I'm not quite sure how that's possible in the present day. Mm. But people were going weekly or two or three times a week. And the programmes would change very frequently. So you might have a picture that would be on Monday and Tuesday. Then there'd be a new programme on, on Wednesday and Thursday. So you could have three or four changes in the week. And people would go to all of those different showings. They didn't have as many alternatives, I suppose. And what then in terms of exhibition and the rest of the the country, presumably only a certain number of prints would actually come into the country and uh, they would gradually find their way around regional cinemas as they, they began to open up. Exactly. And that did become a bit of an issue, I suppose, later on, especially as the cinema sort of is battling against other forms of entertainment in the 60s with TV, because you had the first run theatres in the city centre and they got the first go of the print. But then by the time it, it got distributed down the line to the, the second run cinemas in the suburbs. And then by the time it reached the end, far end of the country, it was very often quite badly damaged and scratched. And you could also have situations where various projectionists took exception to something they saw on the picture and they actually made their own little censorship cuts to the print. So you mightn't get the full picture by the time it ended up down the uh, And uh, they were quite boisterous affairs, the screening of films in in certain parts of of Dublin and in certain cinemas. Yes, and and certain cinemas would have had a reputation for having a tough crowd, um, especially where you had lots of kids coming in for the Saturday matinees. And they were more, in, as, well, as interested what, with what was going on around them as what was going up on the screen. And that's why the ushers had a very important role to play, kind of keeping the, the crowd contained. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And you know, sometimes the kids would bait the ushers. I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a cinema on the Keys in Dublin, which was nicknamed The Ranch because they tended to just, just, yes. just so Western. The so Western. I'm assuming yeah. that... The West, the screening of Westerns was even more boisterous because there would have been attempts to imitate some of the behaviour that was going on screen. <laughs> yeah, 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 they were hugely popular. So the Westerns and, and, and the Follier Uppers as well, the, the series. Yeah, explain that. I mean, this is I've heard this phrase over and over yeah. again. What was a Follier Upper? So when you went to the pictures, you didn't just have one movie. You'd have a whole range of things. So you'd go in and you'd see the B picture, you know, at, which was often, you know, as the title suggests, not quite top quality, but it, it filled the time in. You'd have maybe um, the, the movie news called reels, the newsreels. News, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. And then you'd have the big showing of the main picture. But in there as well, and again, encouraging audiences to come back week after week, you had serials like 
Ming the Merciless, you know, Flash Gordon in the 30s and then there was various uh, Westerns, I think Roy Rogers and that kind of thing that would come back every week. There'd be a, you'd be left on a cliffhanger. So that would So that's the follow your up. So that's a follow up. Yes, right, follow okay, up every, well, yeah. And the, I mean, the cinema was a huge outlet. It, it wasn't just a masculine activity. It was a huge outlet for, for women and for children, obviously, as well. Yeah. So often women weren't really considered respectable if they were going to public houses. And a lot of people didn't drink as well. A lot of people didn't take alcohol and there weren't many other alternatives. So going to the pictures was a, was a, a good option. For a lot of people as well, I suppose I'm interested in from the perspective of these new suburbs where you had large families in small houses, ultimately, um, or people coming from the tenements. And the idea of sitting down in a nice, warm uh, cinema and having the crack uh, was really quite attractive and you could get, because of the variable pricing, you could get quite cheap seats at the front, the wooderners, <laughs> as the name <laughs> suggests, not very comfortable, or the cushioners at the back. And some of the cinemas had a balcony as well, so they would be the, the most exclusive and expensive seats. Um, now, some of them also had other activities uh, going on. Tell me about somebody called Billy Panama. Yes, I, I hadn't heard about Billy Panama until I was uh, speaking at, at Drumcondra Library and a lady came up to me and she says, this chap used to come at the interval between the different showings and uh, demonstrate his skills on the yo-yo. <laughs> so I, I, I did a bit of digging and I discovered that Billy Panama was dubbed uh, America's yo-yo champion. Certainly claimed to be. In, in 1932 and he came to Ireland and that was the first phase of this craze of the yo-yo. So it was about a year where everybody was going crazy for the yo-yo and there's reports in the paper the bank manager, everybody <laughs> had the yo-yos. And he, he um, set did up... Did it in, displace the hula hoop or did the hula hoop displace the well, yo-yo? Well, that's a good Whatever. question. That's um, for so social it was, historians. Yeah, it was the big thing and he actually was doing demonstrations in Cleary's at that stage. Apparently a lot of adults used to come along and see all of the excitement and he, he was asked to do a piece, a regular piece in the papers explaining how he did the various tricks and taking you through. And then there was a competition that was sponsored by one of the newspapers and they got local kids to come. So in the cinemas, they'd come along and they would try and do the tricks or whatever. And there was a big final in the Theatre Royal. <laughs> but this happened in 1932 and he was a teenager and then I discovered he came back in about 1956 to restart the craze. And so the newspapers were saying, oh, that craze that your parents mm. were into is coming back now. And he sold his own branded yo-yos. So you get a Billy Panama yo-yo. And it yo -yo second time around for him. Yeah. And it was a big, big deal. And uh, again, the Evening Herald had the, had the competition. And by 62, I think they were now encouraging girls as well as boys to, to show off their prowess on the yo-yo. Now, of course, um, you know, they say love stories began at Chivago, uh, Chivago's, <laughs> Chivago's nightclub. I would imagine quite a few love stories began in cinemas as well. Well, again, it was a very nice place to bring uh, your other half, uh, particularly uh, sitting in the dark uh, in the back row. And I think a lot of lads like to bring their, their girl to a, a horror movie where there might be an opportunity that she'd be so frightened <laughs> that she'd grab a hold of him. <laughs> So presumably an invitation to go to the cinema, that it was understood what was, in, what was implied by an invitation to go to the cinema. I imagine so. And I suppose that's why some forces in Irish society would have considered the immorality of, of the cinema, not just in terms of what was being shown on screen, but what was happening among the audience as well.
You mentioned an impromptu form of censorship where protect projectionists would uh, take exception to something that they saw and would simply get the scissors <laughs> and cut it out. But uh, there was more formalized form of, 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 of censorship. And I think we were... Uh, we were ahead of the world, really, uh, in, in, in that, in, uh, in, in censoring films. Yeah, in fact, we start censoring films before we censor books. So 1923, I think, and the first censor took his job very seriously and applied his <laughs> rules very liberally because he didn't just take exception to the things you might expect, like, um, you know, certain immoral behaviour and dancing the rumba and things like that. Uh, but he also didn't like stage Irishness. Now, there was nothing in the act about that, but Kevin Rockett has written about this and he's explained how he, he took grave exception to people depicting Irish people. Glad he wasn't around when The Quiet Man came out. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, so there's uh, quite a number of, of films in the 20s that he, he banned, particularly uh, ones with, um, they would have been Irish emigrants or they would have been stories about the Irish in New York and he didn't like them one little bit. Gone with the Wind was was a particular victim, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the distributors threatened to withdraw completely uh, because he wanted so many cuts. And I think the US ambassador or so, some high-ranking official anyway came over and negotiated with him. Uh, and eventually it, there was enough left that they could show it, but I'm not quite sure exactly. He didn't like scenes of childbirth in it, for example. And of course, there was a lot of immoral goings on that didn't really... Cut the mustard with them. But even individual words, I mean, word like divorce, for example. Mm -hmm. He didn't like the word divorce. So any reference to the word divorce were cut out of the middle of a sentence. Presumably. <laughs> yeah. And it was even more complicated in the pre-talkies era, you know, when it was still silent movies, because sometimes the cuts were so liberal that you had no sense of what the story was supposed to be because the, the mistress would end up being cut out or she'd be you'd be left thinking that she was the wife or something and none of the plot made any sense mm. anymore. This is not something that ended in the 30s or 40s. I mean, I've, I've, I remember, for example, when I was growing up, Kieran Carty uh, of the Sunday Independent conducting a long-running campaign against censorship and, uh, you know, showing how utterly bodlerized certain films was. So it was still going strong in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah, I remember Life of Brian being banned. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, funny enough, you're talking about I was watching it last night <laughs> <laughs> on, on a streaming service. Um, anyway, the golden age of cinema going in Ireland, I suppose that kind of cinema going that we're talking about. I mean, we are still, the Irish are still very loyal to, mm -hmm. the, to the cinema, but that golden age really ended in the 60s, didn't it? Yeah. If you were to go back, uh, Jim Keenan has a beautiful book of uh, Dublin cinemas and he has a map showing 56 cinemas in Dublin and city and suburbs in 1956. Like it, it's very hard to imagine mm. nowadays when we're so used to these multiplexes, sort of suburban multi multiplexes, which are very, very different. So things started to change with the advent of TV and other alternative entertainments. And uh, some of the cinemas twinned, so they made two screens out of one. Others tried new things so that the cinema people were very aware of the competition. So we had new production like um, Cinemascope and Cinerama. So the, um, the state, that huge cinema in Fibsborough, right beside the bridge in Fibsborough, that was Cinemascope to try and lure audience mm. in or 3D um, 
And all of these things helped for a while. There were also some really big productions in the 60s, you know, these big epic movies uh, go on for three hours, Mm. Lawrence of Arabia or even Dr. Zhivago a little later on. And they were still attracting quite big audiences. But things were shifting and it was hard for the suburban cinemas to keep going, particularly, as we were saying, with that whole business of they wouldn't get the print for a long time. Um, So it was harder because the movies were sort of a little bit outdated by the time they arrived. Um, Yeah, so things start to change. And I suppose in the 60s, you see, um, like my own uh, Drumcondra Grand, of which I'm so fond, uh, turning into a supermarket. And that was fate for quite a few of them. Others become bingo halls. And then, of course, we have various uh, furniture showrooms and some of them struggle on for a bit longer. The Fairview continues for quite a while and eventually then became used for Buena Vista as a viewing cinema, mm. the private cinema. You had others like the classic that had a niche, the classic in Harold's Cross. Harold's Cross, yeah. Uh, when I was a student, we'd all go out there uh, for the late night Rocky Horror Picture On Show. On a Friday night, I yeah. remember as well. So um, some of them survived and then some of them lasted long enough to sort of get a, a new wave of life. Like, like the like Stella, Stella in Rathmines, for yeah, example, exactly. which was, I mean, that that lay vacant for years and years and years and now it was an absolutely magnificent cinema mm. all over again. Yeah, and a reminder of how wonderful it can be to go to the pictures, I guess. Ruth McManus, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening to talk about the golden age of Irish cinema going. After the break, we look at the life of a pioneering feminist, Kate Kennedy from County Meath, who was the first woman in the world to take legal action over equal pay and to win. Stay with us.